Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld addresses a significant issue within our culture. It's the issue of contentment. So get ready for a message entitled, Celebrating God's Assignment, as we turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. Benjamin Franklin said that contentment makes poor men rich and discontent makes rich men poor. You know, the story is told of a Quaker watching his new neighbor moving into a very large home next door. All kinds of modern appliances and up-to-date electronics along with plush furnishings and the finest of paintings were being moved in. The Quaker called over to his new neighbor and he said, Sir, if you're lacking in anything, just give me a call and I'm going to show you how you can live without it. Well, we're studying 1 Corinthians 5-7, to which really demonstrates the countercultural lifestyle of followers of Jesus. Some of the most significant differences are our attitudes to sex and money. In the section we'll read today, Paul turns his attention to one of the key ingredients of the Christian cultural values, contentment, and the assurance that God has an amazing plan for us, no matter what our situation, is one of the great cultural values of this life. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, because this passage includes the issue of slavery, many Christians read this and might raise their eyebrows with a degree of concern. Already back in chapter 6, Paul raised the possibility that a believer might lose money to an unethical believer and decide to take the loss without seeking redress in the courts. Now he raises the issue that a slave should find contentment as a slave. You know, it seems to me that some discussion is required here. How can Christian people ever be content as long as one human being owns another? How can Christian beings ever be content when unjust structures reduce the human experience to misery? You know, we'll deal with the issue of slavery in a moment, but let's begin by addressing the relationship that Christian faith has to the culture. In Matthew 5, Jesus told his followers that they were the salt of the earth. Because salt served as a preservative for meat in a hot climate without refrigeration, the image is surely that of having an influence in the natural, downward, moral state of all human cultures. The presence of Christianity in any culture ought to arrest evil and influence cultural change. Indeed, that is the track record of the Christian faith. I know that many Christians have never been told this, so listen up. Christianity has had a profoundly positive influence in this world, even on those who have not accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. You know, if we had time, we might see that those nations of the earth that have had a considerable exposure to and influence of the Christian faith have prospered in numerous ways. 
Everything from the value that's placed on human life, the elevation of sexual morality, the treatment of women, the value that's placed on charity and giving to those in need, the establishment of hospitals and health care, the effect of Christianity on education, the, the transformation of working conditions and the rights of workers, the value placed on science and human discovery, even the worldview that allows for the scientific enterprise the impact on systems of justice, the transformation of arts and literature, and of course, the abolition of slavery. Historically, we could make a case for how the Christian faith has transformed culture. But this only happens when the Christian faith resists the culture and expresses a new way of living and takes up a prophetic role in even changing the culture. But all these cultural influences come because, if you don't think me too irreverent, They become because of a sense of discontent. When the early church became involved in taking in abandoned children that pagan parents often would leave to die, the sense of the importance of both life and of children made an impact into the wider world. It is as if Christians were saying, yes, we know that's how things are, but we see in our culture, that is, the culture of the kingdom of God, that this is not acceptable. Christians were not content to allow things to remain as they were. And so, without winning everyone to Christ, the mere presence of the values of the kingdom in any culture provides that culture with salt and light. It transforms. So then, what do we make of verse 17? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule, says Paul, in all the churches. Now, taken by itself, that verse can be taken to mean that we are to avoid all attempts for the advancement, either personally or the wider society as a whole. But but that's not what the Bible teaches. Let's try to think of this the other way around. What happens when Christians believe that their primary task is to transform society? What then? Well, in our day, that's what we call the social gospel. People who subscribe to this get involved in politics and in social reform and address poverty and in in injustice, but they stop preaching the gospel. Evangelism no longer becomes the leading focus of what they do. And when that happens, the church stops being the church. And furthermore, eventually, the society transforms the church and nothing changes. No, no. Our task is to make disciples of Jesus, to preach the good and the glad news of, of Christ crucified that all who trust in him can have sins forgiven, have peace with God, be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, and transformed into a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our first and our foremost message. We can never stop preaching that. And then with that message comes another one. However it was that we were found, when you come to Christ, be content. Now, within the context of what we have been reading, Paul must have marriage in mind. Remember that he has been teaching about the, about the real possibility that one spouse may come to Christ and the other does not. Stressors begin to develop in that marriage that were not there before. And so it might be the temptation to get rid of that pagan wife or, or that pagan husband with all of her or his pagan habits and patterns and find a Christian spouse and begin to lead the ideal life and marriage where one learns from the gospel what marriage is to truly look like. After all, how can you transform society unless you give an example of what the ideal marriage is to look like? 
And to that line of reasoning, Paul says, no, 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 no. Your first task is to be content in the marriage situation in which you find yourself. For God's assignment to you as you learn to serve him is to look around at your life station. God in his sovereignty put you in this situation. And so be content and learn to put your faith into practice so you can learn to relate and minister to your your pagan spouse. Love her or love him. Uh, But, of course, we can see from this text that Paul has two more situations in mind. Uh, The first is the example of circumcision, which was the mark of the Jew. We do know from the Jewish historian Josephus that during the time in which Israel was ruled by the Greeks, that circumcision became an embarrassment to many young Jewish men. That's because the Greeks created public baths, and also a great many of the Greek games and athletic events were conducted in the nude. So a circumcised male figure was the sign of a lower status. And so in order to fit into the wider culture, some surgeons of that time had perfected a surgical technique in which they could make it appear as if the young man had never been circumcised. So they could reverse the circumcision. That's what Paul means when he says uncircumcision. This procedure became popular in some circles. But the problem of circumcision went the other way as well. According to the record that we have of the struggles in the early church, circumcision became a major factor. Acts 15 verse 1 reads, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the idea behind this is a a detailed theological discussion, but no doubt some men might have thought in order to avoid the hassle, why not just undergo circumcision? And Paul says to both sides, no, be content in the situation in which you were found. Is this significant in our day? And I think it is. I think that believers today have so much to learn from this dilemma. There are principles that are spelled out here that will speak directly to some areas of discontent that many of us face today. Contentment or discontentment touches every area of life. Society is constantly telling us never to be satisfied, but contentment is a key marker of Christian maturity. Let's learn more when Dr. Neufeld returns. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward and begin the morning with devotions from in-doubt ministry leader Isaac Dagno. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24, 
Paul is teaching a principle of contentment that is to be a marker of Christian maturity. He applies this principle to the issue of circumcision that was for many in his day a significant issue. In verse 18, he commands, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. He is, of course, speaking to the Jewish young man who had converted to Christ and who knew that neither being Jewish or being Gentile mattered. What mattered was faith in Christ. And if this was so, and if circumcision was the source of an embarrassment in the wider Greek culture, why not make an appointment with a specialty surgeon and remove my Jewish embarrassment? And to that, Paul responds, don't you deny your Jewish heritage. Be content in it. And if being Jewish means you're excluded in some settings, be content with the life that the Lord has assigned to you. And then to the Gentile who seeks circumcision. Now, perhaps Paul has in mind a young man who is intimidated by the Judaizers. Perhaps he knows that the Judaizers are wrong, but who wants to hassle with their 100 questions and constantly need to explain that you really do belong to Christ? Why not just submit to circumcision and end the discussion? And to that, Paul responds in the same way. Don't you deny your Greek heritage. Be content with where God has assigned your place. Now, this is not about a Christian looking for a better job or advancing their economic standing in some way. This is about one's ethnicity. Look, as Paul would teach later, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all part of one body. We belong to each other. But on a wider societal level, do not become embarrassed about your family, your background, or the culture you came from. Be content. See, have you noticed that sometimes the best person to reach a culture is the one who has grown up in it, who understands it, and who knows what faith in Christ means in that culture? See, I'm not arguing for a culturally pure church, for that's not what Paul has in mind. I mean, the early church was made up of people from every culture. The point is different. Don't hide your background. Be content. It's a part of God's assignment to you. Now to the more difficult teaching, and that's verse 21. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But of course, as we know, Paul doesn't end that there. He adds something. He says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And furthermore, later on, he warns Christians not to allow themselves to get into a situation where they might fall into slavery. See, many of us have heard the criticism that sometimes attends the New Testament teaching regarding slavery. I remember years ago, I was in university, and I was hearing my Marxist sociology prof arguing that early Christianity encouraged slavery. Think, he said, of how often Paul taught that slaves were to obey their earthly masters. Well, in fact, the Bible does teach slaves to obey their masters. Indeed, the book of Philemon centers on just that drama. While Paul's in prison in Rome, though through some means, and we don't know how, but through some means he encountered a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. Paul leads him to Christ. He then writes a letter to his slave owner, a man named Philemon, who happens to be a Christian man whom Paul knows personally. Onesimus goes back carrying Paul's letter and reenters the servitude of Philemon. So many Christians can't get past this. For one, should not the New Testament command slave owners to find a different job? And shouldn't Christians have founded an underground railway in order to help fleeing slaves to get out from under the injustice of this slavery? Well, to answer that, we have to understand the ancient Roman world and the institution of slavery. 
See, too often for us, we read the American experience back into the Roman world and assume that all slavery is the same. But Roman slavery was of a very different kind than the American experience. You know, for one, American slavery was entirely racist. And secondly, American black slaves were not permitted to learn to write and to read. You know, it it was in the interest of an intensely evil system that blacks be kept poor and ignorant, and in that way one could paint pictures of them that would dehumanize them. See, in the Roman world, perhaps as many as half of that population were slaves. I mean, some people were born slaves, but others were slaves as a result of having been defeated in battle, and still others were slaves to pay off a debt so that their slavery was a temporary thing. Paying off a debt would get you out of slavery. Furthermore, many of the Roman slaves actually attained to a a high position. We know of ancient slaves who were philosophers and and medical doctors and and a host of other leading professions. Some even lived in large villas and lived a life of relative ease. Of course, there were those slavery whose slavery was a miserable business indeed. And nowhere does the Bible commend slavery. Indeed, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10 calls slave traders, those who make their business off the slave industry, ungodly sinners. The Bible never commends slavery as something wholesome or to be desired. It's a part of this evil age. But what should a slave do? And for that matter, what is the Christian faith? In the passage we just read, Paul instructs slaves that if it's possible, they should gain their freedom. But in many cases, it was not possible. And so what was a slave to do? So the first thing to do was to describe the situation that the person was in. Look at verse 22. For he was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. So what does Paul mean here? In order to understand that, we do well to look at some parallel passages where Paul speaks about the same issue. For instance, we do notice how often Paul compares our lives before we came to Christ as being enslaved in sin. Consider Romans 6, 6-7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been freed from sin. Now, in Paul's way of thinking, the ultimate slavery is not economic slavery. It's slavery to sin. Now, we've already discussed that to some degree in this study of 1 Corinthians 5 to 7. The tragedy of the life lived outside of the Holy Spirit's dwelling is that we're in slavery to three things. We're enslaved to the world, that is, the culture in which we live, enslaves our behavior, and demands that we act according to its precepts. Second, we're in slavery to the flesh, which is the lower nature, which makes demands that we should rather not obey, but we do anyway. I mean, think of the person that's enslaved to alcohol or tobacco or pornography or outbursts of anger or greed. I mean, the list goes on and on. And finally, we are, before we are in Christ, enslaved to Satan himself, whose hateful designs on our lives makes us servants to his ministrations of death. See, I can only imagine a a Christian slave working for a non-Christian master. I mean, whose situation is more miserable, the slave who knows Christ or the master who does not? Paul would say, no, no, it's the master. I think, says the Apostle Paul, to the Christian who came to Christ in the institution of slavery. 
Do you not know that you're the Lord's freedmen? You've been freed from the world and the flesh and the devil. What could be greater than that? So then what should a slave do in the ancient world? Well, when that slave came to Christ, if he or she can get free, Paul says, you should do that. But if not, then let that slave who now has become a believer lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her. Be content that God is working out his purposes in you. Now, what does that say to us today? Well, several things. If today your economic status is difficult, look for ways in which you can advance. But if you can't, Would you take some time and consider the riches that are yours in Christ and understand that you are a man or a woman whose eternal wealth far outweighs the world's wealthy elite? And in that, be content and accept this situation that you are in as God's assignment to you. You are given an opportunity to minister to others that you come in contact with. See God's work in your life. See, what happens when when Christians demonstrate a profound contentedness and even a thankfulness in whatever situation they find themselves in is that others who look at this see a change in them. For one, they notice someone who demonstrates what the life of Christ is. See, we know the sovereignty of God. And for another, the lives we lead forms a powerful example as to what is possible in the most difficult of all situations. We witness to our world the things that ultimately matter, the things that are spiritual, that are God-related, and we learn to put everything in its proper perspective. This is a profound change in the life of every believer, and it profoundly witnesses to the world in which we live. John, I have a question for you, and it's a bit of a personal one in some respects when you talk about contentment. Sometimes uh, in the past, when I've moved from one ministry to the other, I've had to check my motivation. And sometimes it's taken a while, even after I've made that decision uh, to move on. Uh, How do we determine that we are motivated correctly? Boy, I wish I had the answer for that, Ben, because, you know, I've had the same experience that you have had, and it's sometimes very difficult for us to know Uh, Perhaps, and I'm just saying perhaps here, but perhaps one test is, are we content? If the Lord were to say to us, stay exactly where you are, will you be content with that? And if our answer can be, Lord, I will be content in whatever is your will. And sometimes not always clear to us, but if we can say that, I think we're probably on very solid ground. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. James wrote to say, Today's message of born again is exactly the reason Back to the Bible Canada has become my go-to resource for biblical teaching. The bold truth Dr. Newfeld presented today was entirely refreshing. I appreciate the truth-based teaching so much that I'll be increasing my monthly donation to Back to the Bible Canada. It really has become such a blessing to me and to my spiritual growth. Keep up the good work, Dr. Newfeld. Please never let the opinions of man influence your teaching about God. Thanks, James. Your words of encouragement mean so much. And we love to hear how this or any of our ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are impacting your journey with Jesus. 
And if you're considering offering a gift or becoming a monthly partner like James, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca or send us a note at info at backtothebible.ca.